God spoke to me. And he said, it's time for you to open up a black cowboy museum. Hmm. I went, I said, God, I can't even talk. How do you want me to open up a cowboy museum? We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becky, oh, well placed. Valuing yourself based on what you do. It's a central theme of this show. Playing a sport for 15, 20 years. Then it ends. How do you understand and value yourself? How do others understand and value you now that you're not doing the sport, doing the job anymore? Though Larry Callis has been a seminal figure in the cowboy and rodeo world in Texas, competing and working in it for over 60 years, he's never gotten too wrapped up in how to value himself. I'm a Christian first, and I'm a cowboy sucker. That's, that's all I want people to know. Christian first, cowboy second. Now, I won't pretend like your host here, the Jew who didn't have a bat mitzvah, would be a useful guide for exploring the story behind that first statement. So, that leaves me, and it leaves us, here with the second. Larry Callis is a cowboy. I was born in 1952, and um, I went to my first rodeo. I was three years old. My dad rodeo. My uncle rodeoed, my cousins, my grandpa, my his grandpa. I can trace it all the way back to the 1860s. The experience of that rodeo, the energy and the ambiance, it captured young Callis right from the start. Everybody was excited. It was a Juneteenth uh, rodeo and everybody having a good time and Back then, Juneteenth was a big deal. Everybody went out to get some red soda water and watermelon and, and just celebrate. It was, it was just exciting. Shortly after that rodeo, Callis was gifted with his first pair of cowboy boots. My mom, when I turned four, she bought me a pair of used boots that had doves on them, white doves. My dad, I mean, my grandpa had uh, eagles on his, and I thought mine was eagles too, but it was doves. Looking the part of a cowboy came with its challenges for a black kid growing up in pre-civil rights era Texas. I'd go to school, back in the 50s, I'd go to school wear a pair of cowboy boots or a cowboy shirt. I'd get laughed out of school. Um, no black girl would want to date me and uh, call me all kinds of names. Um, call me a black guy that wants to be white. Call me an Uncle Tom. Back in those days, everybody called you an Uncle Tom if you wore cowboy boots. But I didn't let it deter me. I, I wore my boots until um, I, ca I can't wear them anymore. 
Back at home, Callus's curiosity about cowboys only grew as he learned about his family's history. I had heard from my uncle, my uncle was named Uncle Willie. He used to tell me stories about cowboys. And he was born June 19th, 1919. He was born on Juneteenth. And uh, he he liked to talk about the old West. And he went on cattle drives when he was like 10, 12 years old. He was working on ranches. And then in high school, Callis made history of his own. Or he made history of his own for the first time. I was the second black to make the state finals in the youth rodeos. My cousin Tex, he was the first black to make the state finals. And he won it in 67. And he won it in 68. Then I came along. I was wearing his chaps. I asked he went to Vietnam in nineteen seventy one and I asked him if I could borrow his chaps and I wore his chaps and I won uh I mean I made the state finals in bareback riding. When I got out on the horse I thought about him. I wanted to ride like him. In the nineteen sixties the family moved to Hungerford, Texas, and Callis started working because well, Callis's dad kept saying, He said, boy, you can't make no money rodeoing. I want you to do something else, you know. For a while, as a young man through college, he worked at Sloan Williams, one of the biggest livestock producers in the Southwest. Here, he got a pulled-back curtain view of the world he'd become so enamored with. I got on a few bulls. I got on a few back horses. And... I saw that it wasn't really for me. Um, I saw the good and the bad about rodeos. Uh, in rodeos, you could be cheated. You know, you just didn't, if you rode to your best ability and you get cheated, and somebody that didn't even ride a horse and they win the rodeo, you know, it just wasn't cool. So it kind of put a damper on it, and I started roping. And uh, I, I noticed that my dad told me a lot about rodeo. He said, boy, rodeo, and it's just, you can't make any money at it <laughs> because it's all, uh, they, have an, they have a way to cheat you. If you don't know anything about it, it's a lot of ways to cheat you in rodeos. They can pick their calves. They can pick the calf you rope. Uh, they can pick the steer that you rope. Uh, they can, it used to be where they can cheat you on your time. Uh, the guy that's judging the horse or the bull can cheat you. It just, it's, it's incredible what they can do on the rodeos. Certain cowboys in the rodeo, Callis came to learn, found themselves disproportionately on the end of these tricks as a means to keep them in a sweet spot where they were visible and competing to attract fans, but not being too successful. That's why you didn't see a lot of black cowboys in rodeos, because uh, having a black cowboy win could get a... Uh, 25,000 people to a rodeo. Mm. 
you know, just one black cowboy. He's trying to compete to the best white cowboy, and they want to see who wins. And, you know, they can even cheat on that because they want that black cowboy there because he's going to draw 25,000 people. Black cowboys, they're so unusual. There was like an entertainment factor that right, right. they're going to draw more people. They're going to draw more people, and at first they were going to keep us out, but then they saw to make some money. They 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 started letting the blacks win, but they only let one or two win because they didn't want it to, you know, overflow with black guys. Not unlike when he got picked on for wearing his cowboy boots. Learning hard truths about being a black person in this heavily white space didn't make Callis turn away from the rodeo. This was where he felt like he belonged. He did, however, probably much to his father's pleasure, get a job that wasn't in the rodeo. He started working at the post office. But it's important to mention there was another part of this cowboy life for Callis beyond the animals and the competing, that blossomed from the time he had spent as a kid at these events and being immersed in cowboy culture. At eight years old, he started to see that he might actually have a pretty good voice. Uh, I worked the back gate and I listened to country music all the time, every Saturday night. I'd listen listen to it from eight o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock in the afternoon till about three o'clock, four o'clock at night. And I started singing to myself. And I started I said, Oh, I sound pretty good. I thought I sound pretty good. I didn't know. But um I learned every song that was back there on the jukebox. Then I um started working for the post office in 75. And I started going to country and western bars. And I started playing the guitar and learning how to sing. And I started playing in the country and western band. And people thought I was going to be the next Charlie Pride. 1984, George Strait's manager heard me or... Um, a guy with the MCA Records heard me, and he told George Strait's manager about me. He took a song that I gave him. It's called There Was a Little Bit of Charlie in Me. And uh, they flew me to Nashville. But two weeks before they flew me to Nashville, I told him, I said, hey, man, I think I'm losing my voice. Mm-hmm. And he said, you just get nervous because I'm George Strait's manager. He said, come on, he's going to fly me up there. And they flew me up there. But when I started recording, they noticed that I was losing my voice. So I didn't get to sign the contract. The contract was on a desk, and I saw the contract. I I wanted to see how much they were going to give me. (laughs) And I said, oh, I'll see you later, you know. But after I started recording, they took that contract up and put it away. So that ended my singing career. 
He was later diagnosed with vocal dysphonia, a condition that causes involuntary muscle spasms in the larynx. So Callis left Nashville, leaving that contract unsigned on the table. He went back to Texas. He continued to work at the post office. He played in bands around the Houston area. And he still competed in rodeos. I was team roping. It's something called team roping. Two guys would rope a steer. And I was roping the heads. And then I graduated from the heads to the feet. I did both ends. Kind of semi-professional. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a, a lot. I got to ride horses again. And, uh be with cowboys. In 2010, after 35 years, Callis retired from the post office and started to work at the George Ranch. This is a big living ranch in Richmond, Texas that acts as a historical site where visitors can come and learn about Texas history and what life was like on the frontier. And I worked there for three years. I was a lead cowboy out there showing people how cowboys came up and where they came from. And that's where I learned where cowboys really came from. So Callis had grown up hearing all these stories from people in his family, like Uncle Willie. And now he was at the George Ranch where cowboy history was actually written down. Some of it, at least. And he was gathering this knowledge from these different places, the oral and the written. Well, the word cowboy came from slaves. And they had a house boy, a yard boy, and somebody worked cows. He was called a cowboy. Back in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, the white cowboys in Texas wouldn't be called dead and called a cowboy. Because that was a slave name. My uncle told me where that word really came from. They used to call it something else. There was a house in, a yard in, and you know what I'm saying? To clarify here, just in case it's confusing over audio, he means the N-word. So back during the slave era, a family with slaves would have a house N-word, a yard N-word, and a cow N-word. That's how we got the word cowboy. When Hollywood heard about it, they didn't know what that word, where that word came from. They heard about the cowboys down here in Texas and what the cowboys was doing. They didn't know they were black. So they started calling the white cowboys on TV and on the radio. First, it was on the radio. Uh, they called them cowboys. There was a cowboy working cows, you know. But he was really talking about a black man. Some of the announcers knew. And they'd be talking about a black man. And, and some people call in and say, hey, was that a real person, you know? He said, yeah, he was a black man. They didn't want to listen to that radio station anymore. So when they started putting them on TV, they wouldn't say they were black men. They had to put a white man on there because they knew they wouldn't watch that 
a TV show. And this is part of why we just seem to associate cowboys with white guys. That's it. Hmm. And they were really black. <laughs> they wouldn't tell the real story about the black cowboys. They tell them. And back in the day, there weren't many white cowboys. They were called cow hands or cow men or cow puncher, but not a cowboy. He learns a lot of this history while working at the George Ranch. But after a few years, he leaves that job to open up his own saddle shop. He had experience repairing old saddles and even making saddles. He starts doing that, making some money, and looking for what to do with his time now. Then came 2017, when Christian first, Cowboy second, Larry Callis got a message. God spoke to me. And he said, it's time for you to open up a black cowboy museum. Hmm. I went, <laughs> I said, God, I can't even talk. How do you want me to open up a cowboy museum? Plus, I don't know anything about museums. He said, step out in faith. When I stepped out in faith, the next day, a white guy came into my saddle shop and he saw a bunch of old pictures I had on the wall of black cowboys and white cowboys and old saddles. He said, what you got here? I said, I just like to collect old stuff. You know, I had old bridles and old saddles. And he said, you ever thought about opening up a, a museum? <laughs> The man who walked into his saddle shop was from Rosenberg, Texas, and actually knew a decent amount about how to open up a museum. He wanted Callis to have a place in Rosenberg's business district. This guy found him a spot, and Callis moved these pictures and artifacts he had collected into the building. Soon, using his life savings, Callis opened up the Black Cowboy Museum, and it took off. I had buses coming to me almost every day, filled 40 to 50 people. I couldn't even get some of them in there. Sometimes I had to do two tours for them. Callis makes the tickets. He gives the tours. He decides what goes where in the museum. And as the popularity of the museum has grown, so of the number and meaning of the items on display, one guy in Rosenberg has brought him some pretty awe-inspiring and unusual treasures found on the side of the road. People didn't know what they were and just threw them away. He picked up one. He knew what it was. He lived in the black part of town. It was a carving that a slave did when he was a slave of his mom. And he passed it down, and it was really nice. I mean, you can look at it and tell it's an African woman. There's the peculiar-looking bridle that Callis bought at a garage sale back in the 90s for $100. Turns out it was worth a lot more than that. A guy from Oklahoma came from the Oklahoma Museum, came to see my museum. And he saw that bridle. He said, where did you get this from? I said, I picked it up at a garage sale. He said... Do you know that is priceless? Mm -hmm. That was made in the 1200s or 1400s. 
and those chaps his cousin Tex won the Youth Rodeo State Championship with back in the 1960s. I, I called him after he came back from, oh, he called me after he came back from Vietnam in 75. He said, hey, you got my chaps? I said, yeah, I got them. And he said, I'm going to come down and get them. He came, came down and got them. And 20 years later, I called him. I said, hey, you got them chaps, Tex? You still got them chaps? He said, yeah, what you going to do with them? What he did with them was put them in the museum. And decorating these walls are all these pictures. All the black cowboys that, that, that rode in this area. I have a picture of every one of them. I have a picture of them on a bull or a horse. The Black Cowboy Museum has not just been about teaching others about the story of black cowboys. It's also been about Callis gaining a deeper understanding of his family and where he came from. That fact was perhaps never more true than when a woman who'd seen him on the Channel 26 News talking about the museum called him up one day. She called me. She said, Mr. Callis, I have a slave house I want to donate to you. I said, what? I said, man, that's huge. A huge donation for the museum, of course. And he'd later learn huge in the impact it have on him personally. And I went to pick it up, and she told me her name was, was Naomi Mitchell Carrier. My heart started beating because my mother was a Mitchell. And I said, ma'am, what the middle name? I said, well, where are you from, the Mitchells? She said, I'm from uh, Hallisville. I said, that's where my mom's from. She looked at me and she said, well, hello, cuz. On that day, Callis would begin a journey of joining together the pieces of his family's story that had long had gaps. Pieces missing because some things just weren't talked about. Things like a slave having a child by a slave owner. Callis would end up finding out after getting some important details from that woman in West Columbia. He was related to James Kerr, a Texas congressman who was a big deal in establishing the Republic of Texas. My mother's slave owner uh, is, is Kerr's son-in-law. These branches of the family tree, the story of why his mother would never tell him why she was so light-skinned. All this that Callis probably never would have known had it not been for the museum. I'm telling you, God is, is in this museum. He's currently working on a children's book and another book about cowboys because he said in the interview, there's a lot more he's not telling me. It definitely has my curiosity peaked. As for what else Callis is looking forward to, well, the museum, according to him, isn't finished. I'm not content. I should be content with the place I have and just, you know, just kind of retire and mostly just sit around. But I'm doing too much. I want it. I want it bigger. A bigger space does seem fitting for a museum with the presence and power as large as this one. So I don't know if 
place with enough square footage actually exists. It started when he was three. The wide-eyed amazement, the love for the boots, the music, and the chaps. Falling in love with the way of life of the cowboy. For Callis, being in this world means a connection to a larger experience. Like it did when everyone was having a good time at that Juneteenth rodeo in 1955. Like it's done now, over 60 years later as Callis has collected memorabilia and given tours through his museum to countless visitors. Well, it's meant everything to me because that's what I've always wanted to be. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be any a teacher. I didn't want to be that. I just wanted to be a cowboy. And I thought I was going to live in a small house, drive an old pickup truck, have my horses in the back of the yard, you know, back in the back, and just retire like that. Life has taken a different turn, several different turns. But Callis has found himself still, surrounded by cowboy stories, saddles, and lassos, and hats. And most importantly, he's found himself in a place where God is. Thank you to Larry Callis for coming on to the podcast, and thank you for listening. To learn more about the Black Cowboy Museum and how to donate, check out blackcowboymuseum.org. Hope to see you next time.